Chapter 2. You don't have what it takes. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counsellors. I didn't have what it took and I knew it, but what was I to do? Stepping into my first senior pastorate at the age of 31, I found myself shepherding a little church in a small town down in the southernmost Hawaiian island. I worked and studied as hard as I knew how and I did my best, but after six months of preaching, I felt convinced I'd drained every last message between the Bible's front and back covers. I simply didn't know what else to say. Despite my frustration, I continued to study week after week and kept running into one dead end after another. I knew that if I didn't get help soon, I would self-destruct. I tried calling other pastors for help and maybe a little mentoring, but their own busy schedules refused to accommodate me. One late afternoon, when the cooling breezes began to blow, I left my office and took a walk through the neighbourhood. Approaching a historic building, it dawned on me that this was the old missionary church of one of my ministry heroes. In 1837, God used a man named Titus Cohen to bring a great revival in Hawaii. Cohen loved those brown-skinned people so much that within three months of his landing, he preached his first sermon in Hawaiian. The islanders were so impressed with his desire to reach them that they came in droves. The sleepy town of 10,000 dwelled to more than 25,000 in the ensuing years as native moves from far-flung districts to the Big Island to hear Titus Cohen preach in their own tongue. As the missionary neared the end of his life, he wrote an autobiography that contained unedited accounts of his activities and accomplishments. Pastor Titus detailed his mistakes as well as his successes, things he shouldn't have done but did, and things he should have done but didn't. He wrote about how God encouraged him, even in the down times, and spoke words of correction when he got off on the wrong track. His book, Life in Hawaii, carries a copyright date of 1882, and by the time I reached Hilo, it had been out of print for many years. In hopes of finding an old copy, I paid a call on the Lyman Museum. To my delight, I found what I'd been hungering for. Do you have a copy of Life in Hawaii by Titus Cohen? I asked the curator. She looked almost as old as the book itself. Yes, she said, with a touch of ice in her voice. And what do you intend to use it for? I just want to read it, I said. I'm a pastor here and I've heard it's a really good book. She looked me up and down, hesitated, then with a sigh told me that the library's loan copy was very old and fragile. Only those with special dispensation could enter the archives, the hallowed vault where she kept the book. No one was allowed to borrow or photocopy life in Hawaii. Since I desperately wanted to get my hands on it, I agreed to sit through a long, drawn-out orientation of the ins and outs of handling this literary treasure. This ancient guardian of the archives made me feel as if I were being inducted into a secret society. Mentored in the archives. After pledging my driver's license, my firstborn, and all my worldly goods, I followed her into the venerated vault. So this was the archives. I looked around the musty, dimly lit room and observed shelf upon shelf of rare tomes, each individually wrapped in paper to safeguard its riches. 
She located my book on the third shelf and with the meticulous care of an archaeologist uncovering the Holy Grail, placed it in a massive koa, a Hawaiian fine-grained redwood table. Her hands trembled as she painstakingly unwrapped it, placing the brown covering aside in a neatly folded pile. Now, when you read it, she instructed me, be very careful how you turn each page. Okay, no problem, I replied. I'd already been through the training. My hands reached out for the book and I opened it on the rich dark wood table. Meanwhile, the curator remained standing behind me. After a stretch of uncomfortable moments, she said, By the way, do not Xerox this, she admonished, emphasising each word. Photocopying would damage the pages. If you must copy anything, you'll have to bring in your own pad of paper and hand copy it with a pen. Right, I said, no photocopying, and may God bless you. Without another word, she left us alone, as old Titus Cohen and the young Wayne Cadero, as we sat together, he conversed with me through the medium of the brittle yellow pages. In the following months, I would come to marvel that this veteran pioneer was always available to me. I had questions, he had answers. I needed instruction, he had the experience. I needed fresh courage, and he breathed it into me from across the years. I repeated this ceremony two or three times each week, and eventually the library's guardian and I became good friends. She knew I'd be coming, so she'd watch for me. To some people, the archives might have been nothing more than the back room of a museum. But to me, it might as well have been a Starbucks where Pastor Titus and I had long conversations over lattes. Week after week, like an ancient Hebrew scribe painstakingly copying the Torah, I would copy word for word the contents of life in Hawaii. Eventually, I filled six yellow legal pads. What a treasure! It was my handwriting, but his heart. Every page of the in original brought to life memorable experiences, unfortunate faux pas and priceless lessons. Cone would confess some mistake he'd made because he didn't know the culture of the Hawaiian people, and then he'd describe what God taught him and how he resolved never to make the same mistake again. Like a long-awaited inheritance, gems of wisdom from Titus Cohen's life spilled from the marvellous book to fill up my own ministry chest. He became my teacher, an ancient mariner instructing me on how to navigate the seas of service. His silent lessons began to shape and form my thinking and philosophy, allowing me to avoid many of the dangers that await all young voyagers intent on launching into uncharted ministry experiences. It's almost impossible to convey how precious that book became to me. Frequently, I'd step out of the warm sunshine and gentle trade breezes to sit in that stuffy room with a man I will never meet in this life, but who became a dear friend to me. Titus Cohen, a frontline kingdom warrior from an age-long past, was a patient mentor. He gave me all the time I wanted, gradually training and discipling me, smiling down on a young pastor who wanted to love and serve the Hawaiian people just as he did. Without exaggeration, I believe he probably saved me 25 years of suffering in my ministry. By reading his book, by observing, absorbing the content of each page through the pores of my soul, I gained his wisdom, 
without having to endure the same experiences that wounded him. Garnering Wisdom As a young pastor, I had to admit honestly that I didn't have what it took to be a leader and shepherd of God's people. When I began, I may have had the zeal and even the calling. However, the very nature of the job caused me to realise that left to myself, I couldn't finish the race. I needed help from outside myself and I found it in the warm counsel of Titus Cohen. Since that time, I've come to realise that it's more than young pastors who need help. None of us have what it takes when we begin. And what is it we must garner along the way? Wisdom. We do not have the wisdom necessary to be the pastor, mother, father, wife, husband, teacher or leader this generation so urgently needs. We don't have what it takes to connect all the dots that would enable us to apprehend all the promises God has given to us, potent promises that we can walk into, see fulfilled in our lives. We may have dreams and visions, but we don't have the wisdom necessary to navigate the highs and lows we will most certainly encounter. We might have been offered the privilege of a ministry position, but we don't have the wisdom necessary to become all that role will require of us. In his grace, God gives you and me a measure of faith to get us going. But it's not all we need to finish the race, not even close. That we must gather and collect along the way. He designed life like this to keep our hearts teachable and compliant with his heart. Our shortage of wisdom keeps us seeking him and prevents us from becoming hard-hearted. It keeps us humble, malleable, correctable, changeable and transformable, so that with each new day we might increasingly reflect his image. In fact, this step-by-step maturing process is what we usually call a relationship with Christ. Our relationship with Jesus grows and deepens as a greater and richer wisdom takes root and grows inside of us. How exactly do we get this kind of wisdom? We have to pick our pick of two very different instructors. A choice of instructors. Life has given us two very effective teachers. Both are top flight instructors but neither comes cheap. While both are effective, both require something of us. We have to choose one or the other, and if we choose neither, the second will be chosen for us. The teachers are wisdom and consequences. You can learn a great deal from either teacher. I should warn you, however, of the huge difference in their instructional styles. While wisdom will amaze and delight us with her lessons, consequences will leave us breathless and not in a good way. The truth is, consequences is by far the tougher teacher of the two. For one thing, consequences enrolment, cost and ongoing tuition are sky high. Oh, she'll teach us well, all right, but by the time we learn our lessons, her instruction may have cost us years It may have cost us our marriage, our family, our job, our ministry, perhaps even our life. Consequences has a huge back-end cost. In your younger years, did you ever think that you were Superman or Wonder Woman and then jump off a fence or doghouse to prove it? 
Not long ago, a friend of mine, reflecting on his childhood, told me how his big brother convinced him he was Superboy. Nothing could hurt him. In fact, to prove it, his older brother challenged him to walk over to a patch of white clover and step barefoot on one of the busy honeybees attending the blossoms. His brother was very convincing. My friend took his little bare feet over to the clover and trod on a bee. He said he didn't know which hurt the most, the stinger in his foot or the realisation that he'd been deceived. He was vulnerable, after all. Every one of us has learned something from personal experience that has made us a little wiser. But such lessons, lessons learned from consequences, inflict real suffering and acute pain, and sometimes they're much more injurious than a bee sting. Suppose you run full blast into a wall and bang, you break your nose. What did you learn? Wall hard, nose soft. Wall win, nose lose. Good, you're wiser now. What's the lesson? Don't run into walls that don't move right along with you. Congratulations. You garnered a pearl of wisdom from a personal experience that included some suffering and pain. So now you've got your pearl, it's pleasing, it's valuable, but that's just one pearl, one nugget, one checker piece, one bit of treasure. Becoming the husband or wife or teacher or leader you want to be, the person you were created to be, will require a whole bag full of these gems. How else will you know how to navigate life's twists and turns? To get where you want to go, you'll need far more wisdom than what you gained from your unfortunate experience with the wall. The truth is, you don't have enough bones in your body to shatter in order to gain the wisdom you'll need to succeed in these difficult days. To garner the necessary wisdom to be the mum or dad or employer or employee you want to be, you just don't have enough noses to break. Oh, you'll learn on the path of consequences. You'll even learn a few things about God, as the psalmist did. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statues. If, for instance, I could visit everyone who's reading this book right now and learn from them the wisdom they have gained through suffering without breaking my nose or anything else, then wouldn't I be a very rich man? I would have wisdom beyond my years. I would have insight far beyond my experience way beyond what I could have compiled on my own. In fact, I'd have the wisdom of the ages. That's the classroom wisdom invites you to enter. In the school of wisdom. If consequences has a back-end price, wisdom has a front-end price. It requires discipline, obedience, consistency, and above all else, time. Then it gladly pours on you its promised tremendous riches. Do you want to know the biggest difference between consequences and wisdom? Wisdom teaches you the lesson before you make the mistake. On the other hand, consequences demand that you make the mistake first. Only then will it teach you the lesson. Wisdom puts up the fence at the top of the cliff. Consequences visits you in the hospital when you're in traction, after they've scraped you up from the cliff's bottom. Solomon put it like this, A prudent person foresees danger and takes precaution. 
the simpleton goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. That, in the proverbial nutshell, is the difference between wisdom and consequences. Why not get rather gain wisdom from the experience of others? Let them testify to what they have learned. In this way, when you hear how a friend ran full speed into a wall and bang, broke his nose and shattered his glasses, you can listen and learn when he says, Wall, wall hard, no soft, glasses and nose break. By listening, you save all of the optometrist bills and all the broken bones. By learning one lesson at a time, you gain a little wisdom from his experience, and you don't have to suffer as he did to learn the same lesson. When someone stands behind a podium and testifies about his broken marriage or his shattered life or what he did wrong and how God resolved it, learn from that experience. This is why the Bible says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. If you and I refuse to learn, we're just simpletons, naive, gullible. God's word would even call us fools. A wise person sees consequences ahead of time and makes a change before he runs into the wall. A foolish person just runs into it. He'll have to experience it for himself before he'll learn. And if that's the way we live, we will not gain the wisdom necessary to run this race of our lives successfully. If you're going to be the person or the leader you need to be in the 21st century, you must find out how to learn from the experience of others. We urgently need people who have wisdom beyond their lifetime, wisdom beyond their own experiences. In this book, I want to offer you what is perhaps the most simple and most important thing in the world. If you will catch this life principle and put it to work, you will save yourself decades of lost time and wasted resources. I promise you, I'm not overselling and I do not exaggerate. The essential practice I will describe in the following pages will give you the kind of eyes wide open wisdom you need to keep from running into brick walls and show you hidden doors so you can walk right through them. Two pains. Just as there are two teachers in life, so are there two pains. Both can cause suffering, but one moves you forward while the other sets you back. The two pains have names. They are discipline and regret. The Apostle Paul spoke of, his cru- of the, this crucial difference to his, in his second letter to a group of immature Christian friends. His first letter had caused them some real emotional pain, just as if his words had flayed them wide open. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance, that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. The kind of wisdom the Bible offers us takes discipline to extract. Again, discipline can cause some pain. Spending time in the Bible is not always convenient or comfortable, nor does it always yield immediate or obvious benefits. 
Some days it may feel like a drag. Other days it may seem like the last thing you want to do. On some mornings, taking yourself by the collar and sitting yourself down with an open Bible may feel akin to a cold shower or swimming against a current. What's the alternative? I would simply remind you, the pain of discipline costs far less than the pain of regret. It isn't even close. If the pain of discipline can gain for us the wisdom of others, men and women who had to suffer through a great deal of regret, then isn't the pain of discipline worth it? In 1 Corinthians, Paul recalls the experience of some ancient Hebrews from Moses' day. Don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. It's as if Paul is saying to his friends, Look, you appear to be in danger of heading down the same road that destroyed your ancestors. Don't you remember? Travelling that way brings regret and death. You have a choice here. Either learn from their pain and get back on the right road, or follow their example and end up just as they did. James says it even more plainly. He tells us that we can get wisdom from two primary sources, and that we don't want it from the first. He speaks initially of a wisdom that comes from below, street wisdom. This wisdom from beneath is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. That kind of wisdom will get you nowhere in the long run. It will only bring you oceans of regret. Instead, choose the alternative. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits. If you and I don't put together a package of godly wisdom to chart a course through our current season of life, we will go through the season and come out the other end to find nothing but a brown, barren landscape. It won't be a fruitful season. It may even feel like a waste. You may not be old enough for this exercise, but some of us can look back on particular decades in our lives and wonder, what happened to me in those years? What came out of my 20s? What was I thinking during my 30s? Where did I take a wrong turn in my 40s? Since we get only seven or eight decades on this earth, one thing is immeasurably precious. You don't want to reach the end of a 10-year stretch and realise you were way off the mark or that you frittered it away. That won't happen to us if we collect the wisdom God offers us in his word. Armed with his cutting-edge eternal truth, we will start to negotiate life's twists and turns, navigate correctly and remain on course. What's it worth? I opened this chapter with a story about my ministry hero, Titus Cohen, who served in Hawaii in the early 19th century. Even though this man lived some 130 years before I came along, the intervening time simply vanished after I was in his presence a while. During his stay on earth and ministry in Hawaii, he was attempting to teach and pastor weak human beings, just as I was. He was seeking to keep his life in balance and keep his walk with God fresh, just as I was. 
He made some big mistakes, just like I was making big mistakes. But the point is, and I can't emphasize this enough, I didn't have to repeat his mistakes. I didn't have to wade out of the mire of his failures. I didn't have to spend the years and the tears learning the lessons that he learned. Why? Because he had gone before me. He warned me away from the hazards I might have easily fallen into without his counsel. Again, he saved me untold years of suffering in my ministry. As I said above, by absorbing his words, I gained his wisdom without having to endure the experiences that wounded him. In fact, his book was so precious to me that when I left Hilo, the board of Lyman Museum located another copy and gave it to me, complete with a newspaper clipping that highlighted Titus Cohen's legacy as well as his obituary. I remember looking at that gift with tears in my eyes and saying, how come you waited this long and what am I going to do with all the yellow pads of paper? How much would I have paid for a book like this? I would gladly have paid a thousand dollars. But speculate with me for a moment. What if my trip to the archives yielded not just one but dozens of such books? each offering insightful lessons from the past that could save me years of hurtful consequences. What would that be worth? If I could get other great men and women of history to write down for me their mistakes and successes, I'd pay 30000 for it easily. It would be a bargain, a steal. I would do this because I know it would save me a lifetime of suffering. I could gain the wisdom of the ages way beyond my own lifetime, that would be worth 30000 no question. But consider the grace of our God. He took about 400 of his top people and put their raw, unedited stories into a whole library of books. He gathered 66 of these books, books about men and women, kings and slaves, soldiers and prophets, housewives and prostitutes, fishermen and courtiers, and put them into one. The Bible records it all the good parts as well as the bad. Why did God pack all of these raw accounts into a library, a biblios or Bible, for all time and eternity? Because it's for us. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 11? These things were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. God had these stories written down so that through them we would gain the wisdom of the ages. We don't have to make the same mistakes as Jacob or Esau or Saul made. God wrote it all out for us. In 66 books, he offers us the wisdom of the ages. You don't have to spend $30,000 to get it. You don't even have to spend 1000 You can get it all at your local bookstore for $10 or even less. Just ask them where they keep the Bibles. Legacy and Life Suppose I had found a dog-eared paperback copy of Life in Hawaii for $1.50 at a used bookstore on some street downtown. Let's say I just tossed it into the back seat of my car, intending to flip through it someday. Then, let's say it found its way into my home where I stuffed it into the bottom shelf of my bookcase along with the old road atlases and some back issues of National Geographic. 
Would the book be any less valuable? Would it contain any less potential to transform my ministry and save me years of wasted energy and grief? No, of course not. The words would be the same, whether they were in a cheap paperback or a locked vault. The difference would be in the value I assign to that book. I think it should amaze us, stun us, every day how invaluable is this book we call the Bible. God not only marked out these 66 books, he also breathed himself into the whole library and said to us, If you will read this, I will let you sit with Jacob. I will let you walk through the deserts with Moses, and the same wisdom that I gave Moses I will transfer to you, if you will only take to heart the words written here. You can walk with Esau and ask him why he sold his birthright. You can sit by the fire with David and ask him how he felt when Absalom turned on him or when Nathan confronted him. It's all here. The Bible is the greatest book of wisdom in the entire universe. That's why Psalm 119 declares, Your commandments made me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. The men and women the Lord highlights in his book continue to bear divine testimony all through the ages. They say to you and me, this is what I did wrong. This is where I made a false turn. This is where I did better. This is where I pleased the loving heart of my almighty father. Take those life-giving insights and secure them in your heart. You don't need to break your nose and crush your dreams and destroy your future, even though some of the biblical men and women did. You can use the example they display to you and the counsel they offer you to find a better path for you and your loved ones. The men and women of God's word have left you with a legacy of life skills. This legacy is yours for the taking. Remember how I haunted the back room of that Highland Museum day after day, spending untold hours copying and pondering the experiences and insights of Titus Cohen? I paid a price as a young man to gain that good man's wisdom. Oh, but how could I ever reassign a value to what I received? It has shaped the rest of my life and ministry to this very day. Nevertheless, as helpful as Cohen's memoirs might have been to me, they can't begin to compare with the mighty insights of God's eternal word. You and I need to go to the book and pursue these living truths with all our hearts. If you are willing, the Bible will give you wisdom beyond your years. It will save you from heartache beyond your imagination. Chapter 3. The Self-Feeding Program Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. The sullen staff member entered my office, saying only, I think my season is up here. I'd heard those words before from others. Over many years as a pastor, I'd welcomed people in and I've bid them adieu. For some, it was a normal part of growing and maturing. But this one would leave me confused. He had been with us four years. Is there any reason why you feel your time may be up? I asked. Well... He hesitated. 
I'm just not being fed here. I hate those words, not because I'm insecure, but more because the very culture of new hope, our church community, is designed to alleviate symptoms like these. For the past 10 years, we have intentionally built a culture that includes a self-feeding program for each individual, beginning with our staff. The refusal of this responsibility opens the floodgates for a codependency of sorts, one that requires others to don the responsibilities God intends for each person. I challenged him with this picture. Imagine that my wife sees me one day, gaunt and emaciated. My eyes are sunken into grey sockets, my body is frail, exposing my skeleton. My abdomen is distended from starvation. I've obviously not been eating. When she sees me in this condition, she exclaims, What in the world is happening to you? My answer is, I'm not getting fed around here. Then, continuing my lament, no one is feeding me. What do you think her response would be? Feed yourself. I then asked the staff member if he was doing his daily devotions. My words were met with an empty stare. I knew he had let this one life essential drop off his list of what was important to ministry success. I accepted his resignation. I remember a time when I was in that exact same place, faced with the looming consequences of a non-existent self-feeding program. I also recall having delegated that responsibility to others. The Realisation Shortly after I became a Christian, I found myself complaining to God about the quality of my church's academic-style preacher who often flew things at a high altitude where I was unable to cruise. I began my complaint in the bathroom after a service. God, I called out, hoping I was alone in the men's room. I'm going to starve in this place. I'm not getting fed. I'm dying here suffering from malnutrition. I'm not sure if it was a chuckle from the stall next to me or a reply from heaven, but I recall becoming acutely conscious of something as the Spirit spoke to me from the depths of my own anguished being. What about me? He seemed to whisper. Am I not enough? Why are you blaming others for your lack of growth? You are depending on once a week feedings, but as you grow up, you must learn to feed yourself. I will be your mentor. My problem wasn't a lack of resources. My problem was that I was expecting others to spoon feed me. Until that point, I'd resisted God's best programs and his most gifted teacher, the Holy Spirit. He had been inviting me to be his student, but I'd remained unresponsive. I wanted others to do what only I could do, take responsibility for my own spiritual health and nourishment. As I began to get into the Bible on my own, I saw that Psalm 32, 8 and 9 struck at the core of my error. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise they will not come near to you. I had to admit the ugly truth. I was that horse. I was that mule. It's no fun making such a confession. It was time for me to take responsibility for my own future.
the last 5%. I hate to break the bad news to you, but about 80% of all you do, anyone can do. For example, going to work, attending meetings, checking email, answering phones, going to soccer games and lunches and dinners. Additionally, about 15% of all you do, someone with some measure of training could do in your place, whether it's selling a product, running a program, teaching a class or fixing a problem. There is education and training available for someone else to do what you do. But at least 5% of what you do, only you can do. No one else can do it for you. Only I can be a husband to my wife, Anna. Only I can be a dad to my three children. Only I can keep my body healthy and only I can grow spiritually. No one else can do the last 5% for me. I alone am responsible for it. Only you can keep yourself spiritually healthy by feeding yourself. No one can do it for you by proxy. It's for this last 5% that each of us will be held accountable in that great and final day. It's the last 5% that will determine the depth of influence we will have on the generations after us. It's the last 5% that will decide how joyful our marriage will be and how genuine our legacy is. And one of the most important aspects of the 5% is this. No one but you can sit before the Lord to hear his instructions for you. Jesus' words ring again true as he speaks to you and me. Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. The last 5%, it's something we have to discover and then be responsible for. Only I can be a husband or wife to my spouse. Only I can be a father or mother to my children. Only I can grow myself spiritually. Only I can keep myself healthy. Only I can keep myself disciplined. I know I will need some help with these. I need coaching and mentoring. My big challenge still lies before me. Applying what I learn. Just as only one thing is necessary... There's only one place to find this help. Let me introduce you to someone who was given the assignment to assure our foundations, if you will allow him. Truth needs a guide. As a new believer, I made a very common error. I wanted others to study hard and prepare well so they could dump bushels of knowledge into my brain. I didn't realize that knowledge, even biblical knowledge, is like sodium in rare form. Sodium can be destructive to humans until it gets converted into a higher form, sodium chloride, or table salt. In the same way, knowledge is never an end in itself. It must be converted into a higher form, wisdom, for it to be useful and beneficial to us. To that end, God sends us the Holy Spirit, who will guide us into all truth, because truth needs a guide. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. God has assigned his Spirit to be our guide. 
the guide who will deposit God's very wisdom into our lives. So how does this work? Does the divine mentor implant information and insight into our subconscious minds while we sleep? Does he build a golden aqueduct between heaven and our soul and open wisdom's floodgates so it can pour directly into our minds? Not exactly. We receive direct revelation about God and discover his wonderful promises in only one place, the Bible. The psalmist cried out to the Lord, You have exalted above all things your name and your word. God's word, the Bible, is crucially important to our everyday lives. And don't think obscure religious knowledge here. Think food, think water, think air. As a pastor who has worked with people for over 33 years, let me speak plainly. You won't survive without God's insights and wisdom. I've encountered many people who believe otherwise and have watched them implode. We gain all important wisdom only as the divine mentor instructs us through a living interaction with an understanding of God's word. Our need for such a guide becomes increasingly vital as we get closer and closer to the end of history, for that is when spiritual deception will become most rampant. Paul warned his young disciple Timothy of a startling fact about living in the end times. There would be more false prophets than true ones. He cautioned that many people living in those days will have a strong tendency to be always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Without the guide, we can learn facts all day long and yet never move one inch closer to the truth that will make a difference in our lives. But with the Spirit imparting to us God's wisdom as he reveals it to us from his word, the whole picture changes. With the Lord as our divine mentor, the wisdom of the ages gradually becomes our own. Travelling Companions Did you know that top athletes always rely on a coach? In terms of equipment, every superstar performer brings along more than clubs or rackets or cleats. I've heard people ask, why do they need a coach? They're the best in the world. That's why they're the best in the world. They cannot become and remain the best at what they do until they understand and apply the crucial essential of being coachable. This is equally true for each of us. So God designated and assigned some of history's best mentors to us. Sometimes they will keep us improving. Other times they will just keep us alive. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Abel speaks. This man goes all the way back to when man could still see angels with flaming swords bearing the way to the Garden of Eden. He called Adam Dad and Mum Eve. He was the first man to ever die on planet Earth. Abel goes back just a bit, don't you think? Yet the Bible says this man still has something to say to you and me. He will take his place as an assigned mentor, and so will Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Elijah, Nahum, John, and Peter. Likewise, Sarah, Deborah, Ruth, Naomi, Mary, Martha, Dorcas, and Priscilla. 
and scores of others. These men and women, though they no longer maintain an earthly address, wait to speak to you out of the living word of God. They are waiting to mentor you, to encourage and correct you, just as a good coach will instruct his players. At times, they will raise their voices because they see you rushing toward a dead end. On other occasions, they will stand in your path like the angel with the drawn sword who blocked balm and say, you're not going to do it. When you want to take a left turn down a blind alley or head the wrong direction on a one-way street, it may be Jeremiah or Ezekiel or David who will exhort or reprove you. Regardless, these are phenomenal mentors to have on your side. I remember grumbling on the golf course one day about how terrible my round was going. God always seems to answer my prayers except on the links. We were playing in a foursome, but I didn't realise a fifth had joined us as on the 14th green. Just as my grumblings were increasing in decibels, I heard James whisper, Let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. In other words... It could be worse. Immediately, I recognised the voice of someone I had just talked with that morning over coffee. I remember chuckling quietly and whispering to myself, Busted. A multitude of mentors. Over a period of about 1,500 years, God chose more than 40 different men to write down his divine words in a book. Just like he gave the angels assignments to be ministering spirits, so he's given the people of his book the assignment to mentor you and me. I can't think of a better mentor for a businessman than Solomon, who reached an unbelievable pinnacle of success while still a young man. I can't think of a better mentor for a pastor than Moses. This great leader shepherded a congregation, not of thousands, but of millions. We can walk with him through the desert and feel the sand's heat on our toes. I can't think of a better mentor for a professional than Luke, the physician, or for an educator than Paul, or for a mother than Mary. You get the idea. God has given these men and women the assignment to mentor his children in every facet of life. They live in the scriptures by his power and breath through his inspired word. All of these have gone before us, Scripture says, and now they're in the grandstands cheering us on. Isaiah, Sarah, Ezekiel, Mary, Matthew, Ruth, Daniel, Esther, all of them and many more stand ready and eager to mentor us. We have only to ask. The good and the bad, lessons from both sides. There are two basic kinds of mentors in the Bible. Most of them, like Abraham, Daniel and James, are godly mentors. They teach us how to live wisely, how to please the heart of Almighty God. But the Bible also features many mentors who, through their examples of foolish or even evil living, teach us how not to live. God includes the stories of Cain, Esau, Ahab, Jezebel, Herod and Judas, allowing their shrill voices to live on so that we do not make the same destructive choices they made. They provide potent illustrations that will speak to us from the downside of poor decisions. Solomon reminds us of this. 
I passed by the field of the sluggard, and by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it, I looked and received instruction. A few years ago, a young man left Hawaii for a short time to enter a popular mission school of biblical studies. When he returned, I asked him, How were your classes? He replied, Some were dynamite, but some were a total waste. What do you mean? Some of the instructors were good, but the rest were awfully bad, so I didn't learn much from them. No? I challenged. Don't do that. You can learn as much from the bad as the good. You don't understand, he said, explaining his plight. Some were so tedious we were bored stiff within three minutes. That's fantastic. What? You can learn valuable lessons from them, I said. Take notes on that. Let them read like this. Our morning teacher is able to bore us to sleep in only three minutes. This has rarely been accomplished. This must be a miracle. I continued. Analyse what he did. What made it so boring? Was it his monotone voice, lack of research, tired passion? If you can figure out how to learn from the bad as well as from the good, you'll learn twice as much in life. That's why God put into the Bible raw, unedited accounts of men and women behaving both wisely and foolishly. He handpicked these people to mentor us, the good and the bad, together. Remember what Paul said? For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Lessons come from every angle, so get ready. The best gems will come from those ignoble characters who have left them behind, unacclaimed. If you will go there... Those treasures will belong to you. Do you want your inheritance? Talking about our standing in Christ as heirs of God's promise to Abraham. Paul wrote, As long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Your inheritance is what God has in store for you that latent treasure, that potentiality, those possibilities in your life. He keeps most of it under the guardianship of caretakers until you come of age. It's almost as if the biblical mentors are caretakers who steward your inheritance until you come of age. So they will teach you, advise you, tutor you, mentor you until you receive the fullness of what God intends for you. You have a divine inheritance waiting. This is held in abeyance, in trust, until you come to a point of maturity. So here's the real question. How badly and how soon do you want your inheritance? Pursue the best. The people around you are going to influence your life. The influences will be good or bad, so pursue the best ones. Don't leave this to chance. Go after it. He who walks with wise men will be wise but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Do you hear your mentor's instructions? We become like those people we hang around with. As far as the why, you've probably heard the answer so often it sounds like a cliche, but it happens to be the truth. 
Wisdom is contagious. It's something you catch more than something you comprehend. If you want to be wise, you have to hang around wise men and women. You and I must diligently pursue those who will have the best and most uplifting influence on our lives. That's fine, you may be saying, but I don't have people like that in my life right now. In fact, many people I'm around in my family and at my job aren't living the sort of life I want at all. Where do I find these wise men and women? Actually, they're in close proximity right this moment. They are Joseph, Daniel, Abigail, Isaac, Mary, Jacob, Ruth, Joshua, Esther, Josiah. The wisest people in history are waiting for you. When you hang out with them, their insights and perspective on life will rub off on you. It doesn't matter what age you are, what school you attend, what environment surrounds you. You can choose to be in the company of wise people and you can start today. Their voices continue to echo off the hallways of God's house and after thousands of years not one decibel has been lost through degeneration of sound. Their voices are as alive today as the day they were first uttered. Captured in a kind of time warp, these mentors steward potent lessons of life and wisdom, awaiting a diligent discoverer. The prophets still speak, the coaches still live, the guides await your visit. In fact, they covet your friendship and they expect your company. Listen to the writer of Hebrews talking about the Bible's men and women. And all these did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Physical death did not terminate their lives. God gave them the eternal assignment to tutor future generations of his children. They received a divine commission to mature us. Apart from us, they wouldn't be complete. They would have lived unfinished lives because they are made complete only in us. Discover these mentors as I have. I have oft strolled with David and listened to the sound of his harp in the hills. I have traversed the hot sands of the Sinai with Moses and listened to the Niagara of grumbling skeptics. I have frequently had accompanied Solomon and listened to wisdom, shouting in the city square. I have even wrestled with Samson, begging for the answers to why he was so duped by Delilah. These are real heroes who inspire us through their successes and disciple us through their scars. We will walk alongside their rough, unedited lives without pretense and with no best foot forward performances. They invite us to enter their dwellings. Are you with me? Our mentors are calling us. They've made their decision. The next one is ours.